We're now in chapter 9. Got into it last week a little bit of Luke's gospel. Now, although Luke does not tell us in his account, gospel account, where Jesus went after he fed the 5,000. That was, if you were here last week, or if you're online, you can back up to that and pick up, pick up that. Uh, and he fed the 5,000. But where did he go that the rest of this, today's scripture reading, that's an interesting question. So let's read now from Luke chapter 9. Verses 18 through 27. The title of the message is The Mission. And Luke 9, 18 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. Hear it carefully. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits? himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, once again, give us the Holy Spirit to guide us, to illuminate us and our darkened minds and confused hearts. Father, I pray today that we will see Jesus together to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, 
Luke, you notice, didn't say anything. He went right from the end of the feeding of the 5,000. And what you might get the impression is, well, then he just, the next day, he um, started uh, this question. Who do people say that I am? But that's not exactly what happened. There was something in between. And we have three Gospels <laughs> that are synoptic, that are similar. Uh, uh, John being the only one that's unique. But we have Matthew and we have Mark. And we find out from those guys that Mark and, and Matthew, according to them, Jesus and his disciples traveled some 25 miles north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, why was it called Caesarea Philippi? Well, because originally it was called Philippi. <laughs> and, but uh, Rome, remember, were the overlords of all of this, all these places. Remember Herod the Tetrarch? We said that's one of the uh, sub-kingdoms under the big, big king, uh, Rome. And uh, Caesar at that time happened to be somebody um, by the name of, uh, well, Caesar. <laughs> and uh, that's what all of them were called, uh, Caesar. And, uh, um, and this one would have been uh, Tiberius, uh, probably. Um, and uh, the uh, temple had been built by the Romans, and the town had been built in honor of Caesar. So, guess what? Got the name, Caesarea, place of Caesar, prominence, and then the town. So the town kind of got its original name moved over. But the point is that they went a long way up to north, probably uh, very near where we would be able to see Mount Hermon. And that may indicate, again, where the transfiguration. There's some debate about that, and there's some strong uh, opinions on that. But... Uh, that's where Jesus was going to or was at at the time these questions were being asked. And so last week, Jesus showed us his sufficiency, his ability to provide for his people, to provide with his all-sufficient grace and healing and, and all kinds of things. And now begins another new stage somewhat in Jesus's ministry. Remember, he's been healing. He's been going about uh, even raising the dead. He's been doing all kinds of miracles. He's been casting out demons. But now he's beginning to start a turn. And he's beginning to start trying to prepare the twelve. He's beginning to hone in on their preparation to be his apostles when Jesus goes back to the Father. And he knows it's going to be a long, hard journey, and there's going to be many lessons to learn. And so now he's beginning to reveal to them for the first time in this passage the mission that Jesus is on. It's not the mission they're on and what they think he's up to, but he's going to now start making that mission of the Son of Man more clear. 
Our outline today goes like this. The confession, the cost, and the call. The confession, the cost, and the call. The first one, of course, is the confession. That's found in your text that we read this morning or in your Bible, uh, the, uh, chapter uh, uh, 9, verses 18 through 20. 18 through 20. Now, as they traveled on their way, Jesus is the one that stopped and asked the question, kind of threw it out there. Um, what, do you, what are the people saying about me? You know, who are they saying I am, really? Well, the disciples answered, uh, as you might expect, uh, with some degree of confusion and uh, uh, disagreement in the, in the uh, group. Uh, some of them uh, believed, remember, he would, John returned from the dead. Uh, others believed that Elijah, the prophet, had come. And other people were saying something completely different. Another prophet, an older uh, prophet, one of the great prophets, maybe it might have been, uh, it might have been Elisha, could have been somebody else. We don't know. But the point is, an ancient prophet that had arisen. And so, once again, they're all confused and, and not certain. They're taking stabs at it just by what they've heard from other people. But then Jesus turns the question more focused. He says, who do you guys say that I am? I know what they're saying. You've told me that. But I want to know who you think I am. Now, I wonder if they were ready for that question. They were, they were probably all good about speculating on the, on the other matter. It's a little further away. But now he says, who do you think I am? Um. He was essentially saying, do you really know who I am yet? Do you have any, any idea? Have you at last begun to understand I'm not anything like you think that I am? You've been seeing these things, these miracles, but you still don't have any real understanding. He sees them. Or, or they see him uh, like a, you know, a, a tree walking, a, something that's not clear. It's fuzzy. They're not sure. They, they have little bits of pieces or kind of like a, you know, the, the, the old uh, uh, adage about an, uh, blind men all finding an elephant. Each one of them finds different parts. You know, one's got the trunk and one's got the, the tail and another one's got the... And they all think that's what the elephant is like because they're blind. Well, that's kind of, kind of like this. They, they don't... They think they got pieces and they may have pieces of the puzzle but they don't have the puzzle together and Jesus of course knows that but something happens the big guy we think Peter he gets an epiphany all of a sudden he comes up bingo the right answer he says Jesus you're the Christ you're the one. Now, that term is in Hebrew, Messiah. Or, and it simply means the anointed one. 
That's what it for a long time meant. By this point in time in history, as, as the thing, uh, history was going on, more and more, especially after the exile, and more and more there was messianic fanaticism. There was more and more, not just Messiah or anointed one, they were now, people would speak of the anointed one. The one that was going to come and remove all of the hateful and terrible things that had happened to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people. The king of, to end all kings, they, that's who they were looking for. The one who was going to put it all right again. So basically what Peter was saying is, Jesus, you're everything we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah, and we know what that means. You're getting ready to kick some Romans out on their ears. You're ready to, to get us back on top where we belong. But Peter and the rest of them, they were aligned with a prevailing Jewish thought of the day because the Christ was in their idea, in their mind, he was going to be a political revolutionary that was going to come in on a white horse and wipe the Romans out and throw them out of town for good. To get that oppressive yoke of Rome off their backs. So Peter had the title right, but he had the meaning wrong. He had no idea. It's interesting, Matthew gives uh, Peter, being Jewish, Matthew <laughs> Peter uh, gives Peter a little more cred. Mark doesn't too much, and neither does, does Luke, uh, like he's some kind of superstar. Um, um, but the point here, Jesus, you see, used that term, Messiah, because, or, or excuse me, uh, Jesus went on to tell them not to use that term. Even though it was true, what Peter said was true, then Jesus turned around and said, don't don't use that term. So Jesus was repressing their use of that term because they didn't understand it. They didn't really get it. They, they didn't really know what they were talking about. So Jesus is saying, okay, yeah, you're right. I am the Christ, but you don't know what that means. You don't know what that entails. So let's keep that on the down low. Let's keep that don't go starting, you know, waving flags. The Messiah's coming. Here he is. Here he Because Jesus knows they don't get and understand his mission yet. They do not understand the mission of the Son of Man. They didn't get it. Now, be assured, though, that question, who am I? That question that Jesus posed to his disciples then, he still... He's still now posing that 
to all of mankind. Did you know that? All over this world, Jesus is posing that question into your heart, your mind, and your conscience. Who am I? Who am I really? Listen to this quote by R.C. Sproul that kind of, once again, in, a, in his way, brings this uh, into focus. The question Jesus posed to his disciples is the ultimate question for us. Who do you say that I am? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? When we stand up publicly and join a church, we declare to our friends and our neighbors and all of the watching world. That's why we may have people stand up here and make a public profession of their faith. Because they shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus. They should be, he's my savior and I'm not ashamed. At all of the watching world. Quote, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that he is the Christ. I believe that he is the son of the living God. And if you believe that, the same benediction that Jesus pronounced on Peter is your benediction. He says, blessed are you because this is not something you learned in kindergarten or the newspaper or from TV news. Flesh and blood did not reveal this kind of information. If you believe in your heart that he is the Christ, you are blessed above all people because God has allowed you to see the truth, to see the real truth that he is the Christ of God. Peter said it right, but he didn't fully understand what all that would mean and entail. And yet that question Jesus is still putting out to the world. You, people try to ignore it. People try to sidestep it. But he's asking, and you will one day, all flesh will give an account. Now, the cost is in verses 21 through 22. Jesus has something else important here. He tells Peter and company in verse 22 that their messianic vision would not end up the way they were anticipating. He knew what they were expecting, hoping for, wanting, and he knew his mission would not take him there, but it would take him a completely different path. He pulled no punches and says, the Messiah they hoped for would have to suffer at the hands of Israel's religious leaders and ultimately be put to death. It was prophesied that way. It had to be. Jesus knew that. They should have known it. It was prophesied, but it was totally missed by the common conception and depiction of the Messiah. They got the ultimate ending right. Jesus wins. But they didn't understand the path and the suffering that would be entailed before. He first had to wear the cross to wear the crown. And that, at this point in time, they didn't understand. And yet it was right there in the book. 
Right there in the Bible, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, all of those passages foretelling the coming of a Messiah who would suffer and then enter into his glory. You know, true forgiveness always entails suffering. Did you know that? When you, when you have somebody that's hurt you and you forgive, they're suffering. You, there's a price to be paid. It costs when you forgive someone because you're not going tit for tat. You're not saying, all right, stand over here now, get your turn. You did that to me, I'm going to now smack you down the same way. No. You see, it's a high cost to be paid for the forgiver. And that's what Jesus, the role he was in. He was coming to be the forgiver, and he knew that it would be costly. He knew it would be costly. The only way God could pardon us, it was the only way for our salvation to come. He knew the only way that God could pardon us and not judge us was to absorb it into himself. That's why Jesus said, literally, I must suffer. This is not something I'll wake up tomorrow and decide whether I will or I won't. For this reason, he was born into this world. He must suffer, and there is no other way. But they didn't understand that yet. You see, when Jesus went to the cross and died for you and my sins, Christian, he won through losing. Do you understand that? He won victory through losing, through loss. He achieved our forgiveness on the cross by turning the values of the world on their head. Up is down down is up, completely inverts the whole understanding of what the gospel really is. Jesus didn't take power to save us. He gave it up and through it, going through the suffering, triumphed over it. And we go with him. I love, you know, you've heard me quote it a number of times through the years, but I love the, his Be the Victor's name. I still wish we could learn. It's a, it's a little bit challenging him to, to learn, but oh, such great gospel in it. It's such wonderful good news. But just hear the, this, this one line or a couple lines from that. His Be the Victor's name. In other words, who, who's that? He's talking about Jesus. He's the real victor. And then listen to how what uh, this part of the text says, by weakness and defeat, he won the glorious crown. That's, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? <laughs> you mean by, by, by going down and being weak and defeated, trampled over, he wins? That, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. Not in this world. But he's bringing another world. You see, by weakness and defeat, he won the glorious crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet. He got out a giant tater masher and just started crushing them. No, no. 
by being trodden down. He was spit on, trodden down, crushed, bruised for our iniquities. He, meaning Jesus, in hell laid low. That's where he had to go to take our sins. He in hell made low, made sin. He sin overthrew. He took the very thing that was going to sink us and he turned it around and through sin he overthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. He killed death so we could have life. What, a, what an amazing, amazing gospel picture. But they didn't understand. That's the way it had to go. First, the cross, then the crown. It's always been his plan. Always will be. The way up is down. That's why we keep having so many problems with each other and with other people. Because we're always wanting to go up. Jesus told us a better way. The call is in verses 23 through 27. Jesus' rebuke of Peter leads to a conversation involving uh, some surprising demands about discipleship, to say the least. What does it mean when he said, take up your cross? And what does it mean to lose our life for the gospel in order to save it? Once again, it sounds like Jesus is talking out of both sides of his mouth. doesn't make sense. I mean, how, how do you so, you, so you lose to save? And when you try to save, you, you lose? You see, Jesus tells us not to build. What he's trying to, is not to build our identity on gaining the things of this world. People today are all over the place looking, trying to find their identity. In some really crazy, stupid places. But that kind of thing has been going on for a long time. Maybe not the same particular uh, idols they're serving. But it's been going on for a long time. And yet, he is telling us. It's not, a, it's not who has the most toys wins. That's not, that's not how you gain. That's how you lose. Trying to get more for yourself and to keep it and hold on to it and serve yourself and your interest, that's the way you lose. He's telling us to lose our old self, our old identity, and base ourselves and our identity on him and him alone in the gospel. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, oh, I just lost my, I've known this verse since I was 17. Uh, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. 
and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you. You see, he's found a new identity. Remember Paul was the guy with everything and had it all? And he said, I count it all as rubbish. I have, that's not, I, I don't want any of that. I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. You see, Jesus understood. Paul understood. The way up is down. And the way down is up. And that's what he's saying here. With characteristic precision, C.S. Lewis helps us out again in mere Christianity. Uh, listen to this, this quote. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves, the more we think we get more really us, me, the more we get what we call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, yield to him, to his way, have thine own way, Lord, as the hymn says, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call my, quote, self, myself, becomes merely the meeting place for a train wreck of events which never started and cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other personality that I finally begin to have a personality all my own. Nevertheless, you must not go to Christ for the sake of a new self. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. He says, you think you're going to him? If you go that way, he said, you're not, you're not going to him at all. You may fool yourself to thinking you're going to him, but you're not. Another famous uh, character, missionary, um, is the one that Jim Elliott. You've heard the, the quote many of you many times. Um, he who is no fool that gives up that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. In other words, you, you, can't keep, you can't keep what's here and all the stuff in it. And the more you try, the more frustrated and defeated you will be. You give up that. And in Jesus, you cannot lose. There's no way. On, with him being absorbed with knowing him, Loving him, serving him, that's the way to life. In verses 25 through 26, um, Jesus lays out the ultimate cost of looking at things from the world's perspective. And uh, 
Some of you, I don't know, it, it may remember if you've been around a little while, there was a, a very um, um, famed British novelist uh, by the name of Somerset Maugham. And uh, he was extremely uh, uh, successful, wealthy, fabulously wealthy, had a uh, home, palatial estate on the Caribbean in, in, the, in the med, um, and uh, he had uh, all kind of acclaim, literary acclaim, and he was still up into his, lived into his 90s, had, had great uh, uh, following of people. And yet, uh, he was beginning to more and more uh, get closer to death. And he had a, uh, a, a nephew by the name of Robin that would come and visit him. They called him Uncle Willie. And one on one occasion, as he was, he found, Willie found him, or excuse me, Robin found him with a Bible in his hand that Robin had given him. And they basically said, you know, I found this Bible. And he said, there's this part where it says, and then he read that portion, uh, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then this verse, verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself. Somerset Mon said to his nephew, you know, I used to have that verse on the wall across my bed when I was young. And then he changed his whole demeanor looked angry and he said but we all know it's just a bunch of bunk it's all just bunk and he went on to become increasingly increasingly angry frustrated fearful he got to where he was crying out loud I'm not ready. It's not my time. It's not now. I'm not dead yet. But he was. He had everything. And he lost it all. Because he wasn't in Christ. He didn't trust he had heard the truth, but he did not receive it, and he lost it all. You see, Judas's, when Jesus said that, Judas's ears had to be ringing. Because that's exactly what he was about to do. Not too long from this point in time, he was going to betray and lose it all in his everlasting soul. What is this last verse about, though? That's a little, I'm just going to, just give me just a quick second with that. What is verse 27? Listen to that again. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here 
who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Wow. Uh, well, a lot of us think that's, that's still way out there. No, don't think so. What Jesus, what is he saying here? In contrast to those who are shipwrecked, like Judas and like Somerset Ma and others that have lost their soul. In contrast to those who are shipwrecked, we have a Lord that it makes a promise. A guaranteed promise. And some will even see the coming kingdom sooner than they think. And that's what Jesus is saying. Some of you standing right here, not some 2,000 years off in the future. No, right now. There's going to be some of you right in this bunch that's going to see the kingdom of God begin to come. And next week, we're going to see the first episode of that. It could be talking about that alone, about the transfiguration. That's kingdom power coming here. It could be in the resurrection. It can be in the ascension. It could be in all of those. Could. But all those are expressions of the outbreaking of the kingdom of God. You see, they're all the, the transfiguration and all of these are but foretastes. They are preview of coming attraction. And some are going to get a glimpse of it. And next week, we'll look at that in the transfiguration. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, the promise that in Christ we find our truest selves in him and in him alone. Father, I, I pray that you will help us not be fooled in this world and by its promises. For your promises and your kingdom is the only one that must come and the only one that matters. Father, hear us and answer our prayer and accept our thanks for being the one who is the victor over all, not only in for his own self and glory, but he has promised to bring us to. And we await that day and keep us faithful until it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for...